Hello, hello, hello. You know, I can't see the screen anymore, first name, James. That means I don't know how much of the intro I need to wait out. Of course, after, I don't know, what are we at, like 40 podcasts now? I should probably know how long that intro takes. Welcome to this, the Red Bulletin podcast, where we talk to top performers about their path to mastery, the inflection points of their journey, the hurdles that they had to overcome, and uh, the tips and tricks that made them better. Uh, got a pretty impressive guy today, a uh, guy by the name of Colin O'Brady. He became the fastest person to scale all seven summits and visit both poles. He did so in 139 days. Just some context there. Only about around 60 people have ever done this in history, and only a handful maybe have done it in less than a year. He did it in less than less than a year (laughs) so uh what's interesting about colin is he's a man who is not afraid to set incredibly ambitious goals and so i wanted to talk to him about how do how does a man who has not had a lot of mountaineering experience set a goal and actually win people towards that goal and take the necessary steps to to accomplish it um there's a lot in there about facing down skeptics there's a lot in there about manifesting what uh, what you want to happen in the world, um, and also about doing something that's that's bigger than just a mountaineering feat. So uh, it's really, really fascinating. This guy's incredibly polished speaker. Um, I had to kind of break him down a bit to get him to answer some specific stuff because he was so, so slick. Uh, highly entertaining, incredibly interesting story. Hope you dig it. There's, there's so much to cover with you today, and um, I don't quite know where to start. But what I feel is, you know, I want to talk to you about um, what I think is interesting with you is this idea of uh, throwing yourself wholeheartedly into goals and the setting of goals and, and living your life by that methodology. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, like, when you scale, when you set the goal of um, doing this what's called an explorer's grand slam, right? Yep. Which sounds like something that would serve at Denny's in Colorado or Alaska <laughs> Lump- or something, slam, something like that. The slam, Antarctica Denny's, yeah. whatever. It's the explorer's <laughs> grand slam. You know, when you set yourself the goals of, of mounting all seven summits and visiting both poles, um, is that, how does that not seem like a pipe dream when you start it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, it seems even kind of crazy to say it out loud now. And certainly when I was saying it a couple years ago, not being a professional mountaineer, um, trying to rally support behind it, people uh, certainly gave a few like nice taps on the head like, yeah, hey, good luck, kid. You know, right. <laughs> yeah. That's, you, that had you built feasible. up a tr- had you built up a track record at that point? Not so much. I mean, so, you know, I think we, we probably got to go back in time a little bit to go before we go forwards um, to give some context. Uh, you know, I have been a professional professional triathlete for about six or seven years. So I raced triathlon professionally. So I had kind of that background in endurance sports. And before that had been a collegiate swimmer, swam at Yale, swam all growing up. So I kind of had that aerobic, you know, engine, which was required for this big mountaineering feat. And uh, mountaineering in the outdoors is a big part of my life just growing up. So I love, I love that. But more from a, you know, I wouldn't say hobby perspective. I was into it. You know, it's something I loved and, and, and were passionate about. But it wasn't something that I, you know, hadn't been on 10 Himalayan expeditions previously. I'd never been to Antarctica or either of the poles before previously. So to kind of throw out there, hey, I'm going to climb the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents and the North and South Pole, 
oh, and I'm not going to rest at all in between and I'm going to do them in quick succession and try to set a world record was certainly an ambitious uh, goal, to say the least. Is, was it because it was there or was it to prove something to yourself? You know, for me, I'm passionate about, you know, pushing my body. I'm passionate about setting big goals. Um, you know, for me, almost 10 years ago now, I was severely burned in a fire in Thailand, traveling after college, um, you know, lit my body on fire, foolishly jumping a flaming jump rope in Thailand. <laughs> How, um, hang on. Yeah. Wait, hang, uh, where, where do you get in a situation where you light a jump rope on well, fire? Well, believe it or not, if, uh, you know, you throw it on YouTube or whatever, Thailand, flaming jump rope, like I'm not the only idiot have ever tried this, can believe it or not, thousands of people uh, participate in that every night in Thailand, kind of a tourist activity at some of the resorts, fire dancing and whatnot. But unfortunately... Um, for most people, if you trip on the rope, the rope kind of bounces off your legs, like kind of passing your fingers through a flame of a candle and you don't get burned. In my case, I wasn't so lucky. The rope wrapped around my legs, had some excess kerosene on it, sprayed my entire body, lit me on fire to my neck. Um, and I actually had to jump into the ocean to extinguish the flames, which fortunately saved my life, but not before about 25% of my body, primarily my legs and feet were severely burned. And I was told I may never walk again normally. So, and up until this point, you had always envisioned yourself as living like a very active life yeah absolutely so i was 22 years old um you know grew up like i said as an active kid division one collegiate athlete this was just after college so um you know being told you may never walk again normally at 22 years of age when i my framework for life was activity movement pushing my body and these types of things was a really tough diagnosis and to make matters worse i was in rural thailand so i was in you know <clears throat> Uh, in a hospital where there's a cat running around my bed in the ICU, you know, as the we're sitting in a small room right here, you know, the hospital was practically the size of this room, the whole wow. thing, you know, so undergoing eight surgeries in that environment, the, you know, kind of the cultural barriers, the language barriers, it was a scary place to be. Um, and testament to my mother as we get on to sort of goals and what gave me the sort of passion to keep moving forward. She came to my bedside, sat by my bedside for almost three months, um, was I, you know, still couldn't walk. And, she and you said, were in Thailand. In Thailand. Uh -huh. And, you know, she said to me, hey, like, what do you want to do when you get out of here? What does recovery look like for you? Like, what is thriving on the other side of this look for you? Let's set a goal around that. And, you know, at the time I was like, look, mom, I'm screwed. Like, my life's over. Doctors say I'm never going to walk again. I was kind of going in a negative place, understandably. And she kind of kept pressing me like, no, but what would you do if you could do anything? And I said, fine. For me, success or recovery would look like racing a triathlon. I don't know how I got that idea. It's not something I'd ever done before. I swam, but I never biked or run competitively. But I was just kind of in my mind, I was like, a strong, fit, able-bodied person could race a triathlon. Um, and so that was my goal. Um, so for the next 18 months, uh, as I literally regained my ability to walk, coming back to the United States, I was in a wheelchair, still hadn't taken a single step after three months. Um, so in my mother's kitchen, taking that first step, trying to figure out how to walk again, you know, a year of just like long recovery and rehab of literally learning how to walk again, step by step. How did you find your mental balance there though? How did you Keep oh, surely your mom telling you something sure. is, is mo motivating yeah. in in one sense, but in the other sense, it's also it's <clears throat> a lot easier to kind of disappear in your own world. Absolutely, I mean, I think the biggest thing, um, and I guess I, I I took a lot from this as I go forwards in my life now, ten years in the future, but it was having that fixation of that big goal of saying, "Fine, to me, recovery would be this. I want to beat the odds. Here's my big goal," but then saying, "Great." My mom looked at me and said, great, kid, like, you want to race a triathlon? Like, you haven't taken a step in months. And so, I mean, I, a very important moment for me was sitting in my wheelchair, having returned to the United States. My mom grabbed one chair from our kitchen table and placed it one step in front of my wheelchair. And she said, great, 
Today, you need to figure out how to take one step. And so it was almost had the having the big goal for a reason to learn how to, you know, move my body again was yeah. great. But then kind of taking it back and saying, all right, but what's the tiny thing I can do today? What's the one thing I can do tomorrow, the next day? I mean, she moved the next day that she moved the chair five steps away. You know, we were hooting and hollering and celebrating a month into this process when I could walk from, you know, the kitchen or the living room into the kitchen table for dinner. It was like, yeah. wow, you can walk across the house now. Like, let's yeah. celebrate that. And out there, you know, somewhere in the ether was maybe one time a triathlon in my future, maybe if I'm lucky which kept me motivated, but it was kind of also then getting the small little baby steps, the day-by-day -day process of the incremental setting to finally you know, the, move it and forward. And the physical, the metrics of the physical successes and the, the wins fueled your mental ability to kind Absolutely. of Absolutely. You know, I think sometimes when, you know, I, I'm certainly guilty of this, I think we all are, of, you know, setting a big lofty goal that might take months or years to see returns on, but then not celebrating the small wins along the way. Because a big win... For example, setting two world records like I did was a culmination of years and years and years of small incremental wins. And so maybe it was the simplicity of steps, but being able to say, hey, today I took 10 steps. Oh, yeah, yeah tomorrow I, I'm going to take 12 steps. Like that was, we'd be like, sweet, we're getting a little bit stronger every single day. And so after 18 months, um, you know, I honored that goal by competing in the Chicago triathlon, which is my first triathlon ever, um, and surprised the heck out of myself when I not only finished the race, but I actually won the entire race beating, you know, 4,000 other participants, uh, on the day, which, you know, changed my entire trajectory of my life and yeah. allowed me to turn pro and whatnot. I don't, so. I don't get that. <laughs> no, I don't get that. That doesn't make any sense. First of all, your mom sounds like a bit of a badass. She's a badass. Well, okay. Yeah, two thumbs up. Amazing. She's a shout out to her. You grew up, um... Where did you grow up? Actually? I grew up in Portland, Oregon. In Portland, yeah, yep. lovely rainy town. Exactly. Very yeah. active though. Very. Uh, this was before long beards and yeah. So like we weren't we music. weren't like that hipster and cool back when I was growing up. It was right. kind of just a small town with like trees and forests and a lot of rain. But amazing place to grow up. I didn't grow up with a lot of money and resources. But you know my playground was, you know we didn't go on big vacations. You know really out of state or certainly not out of the country. Um, but it would you be had like, siblings. Hey. Yeah, I, was, I have five older sisters. Of course. Um, you know from a big family. Wow. Um, and uh, you know for fun on the weekends or things like that it'd be like let's drive 20 minutes outside of town and go for a hike or a backpack or something like that over a holiday weekend would be the kind of stuff that we did but certainly instilled a love in the outdoors for me from a very young age and movement moving my body and being what'd outside. your parents do what kind of work were they doing uh, so now my dad uh, has actually moved to Hawaii about 20 years ago. He's an organic farmer over there. Okay. Um, and my mom and stepdad uh, were worked in the natural food industry. And eventually, as oh. I was kind of graduating from high school, they founded a chain of natural foods grocery stores that they operate in the Pacific Northwest. So kind of food, health, wellness um, was a big part of, you know, the way that I was raised. But I was raised a hippie, like hippie commune. I was actually born on a hippie commune in Olympia, Washington. Great. My mother, uh, this is another shout out to her because I love this story, but she... Uh, well, I was born at home uh, on a futon and home birth, and there was uh, she played Bob Marley Redemption song on repeat throughout my entire birth. She actually made a mixtape and just right. played that just for repeat the yeah. whole thing. So you kind of picture it: a bunch yeah. of hippies hanging out. Hey, yeah. we're having a baby. Come on yeah. over. We're having a party. Listen to Bob. Yeah, you know, welcome me into the world. So that. Uh, but you a were a celebration because you were the first boy. Right? Exactly. Exactly. That was so a big deal. That was a big deal. Um, and uh, so yeah, kind of uh, a hippie outdoorsy type of type of family that I was raised in, and I yeah, I love them for it for sure. So, and uh, what did that, what did that, those values instill, like what kind of values were instilled in you as you were growing up? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly, you know, health wellness uh, is a huge thing as I've kind of gone out in the world and certainly some of my, you know, charitable work that I've done in association with my world record project and continue to do is around, you know, inspiring kids to get outside, move their bodies, um, you know, active, healthy lifestyle was huge. I didn't kind of quite realize how fortunate I was to be raised in that environment until I took a step out of it and realized like, wow, not everyone's parents are like trying to get them to like eat organic produce and things like that. And honestly, I had a bit of a backlash from that for a long time. I was like, oh, that's stupid. And then I was like, wow, actually, as an athlete and for high performance, you know, fueling my body properly, um, you know, became, you know, a yeah, huge part I of mean, my life. Yeah, because, I mean, surely you, like, you went through those teenage years where you're like, damn it, I want McDonald's, Of course, man. Like, of course. Because they make the way they shoot the burgers, like, <laughs> it looks so good, you know? Hey, man, I don't, I can't those think fries, of, they're good. They I'm not going to lie. No, the McDonald's fries are yeah, the best, absolutely unparalleled. Not, you know, I can't eat them every single day, but right. from time to time, man, they are damn good. I'm but not what they lie. do, and, and, you know, this idea of, like, you know, uh, uh, income level and access to healthy food, you right. know, we, we, just, uh, we just did a podcast with uh, Ron Finley, who's known as the Gangsta Gardener, who plants healthy food in the cracked concrete outside of uh, his home in South Central Los Angeles and has basically spurred this green movement, right? Mm -hmm. Because the biggest problem in South Central LA and other lower income communities is access to healthy food. Food deserts, yeah. But... In in your case, you guys didn't grow up with a lot of money, but food was emphasized. Exactly. You know, to be honest, there's certainly, you know, you know, who you know, walk into Whole Foods and fill your cart up, like that's like your entire paycheck. Like that's crazy expensive, whatever. Right. But there is a way to eat pretty healthy and, you know, low on the food chain in terms of beans, rice, you know, yeah. vegetables, that kind of stuff. You know, when I was in Nepal, for example, climbing Everest, you know, I was blown away by the diets that the Sherpas have. You know, to me, the Sherpas uh, in Nepal are just some of the strongest, most incredible, really, athletes in the world. The, certainly the way they can perform at high altitude is incredible. And their diet, you know, they pretty much eat a meal called Dalbat three meals a day, seven days a week. You know, it's not a very affluent country. Um, and, you know, they eat basically rice, dal, which is, you know, lentils and a little bit of vegetables. And they eat that breakfast, lunch and dinner and they're strong as can be and healthy and balanced and that kind of stuff. So it goes to show um, there certainly is a way to, you know, have a healthy that. But I agree with you in terms of the access um, and, and things that go around that, that unfortunately in this country, sometimes that falls short. Yeah. But in Portland, it was still, I mean, it was still possible and you were, you were obviously raised as such. For sure. And, you know, I, you know, obviously, like you said, I, I've had my moments. It's not like I'm like that, yeah. you know, always, you know, 100% on that. But, um, yeah, Portland was a place, even before Portlandia, even before the beards that you mentioned and the hipster yeah. cool, Portland was kind of an early adopter in the sort of people were throwing around the word organic, sustainable, local before, you know, most everyone else was throwing that around. Certainly, you know, Portland was one of the, you know, places on the vanguard of that. Right. Okay. So, um, so sorry to go back. I had to go back to no, that because um, because well because I got the Bob Marley redemption song birth scene, which is <laughs> which is one thing I really wanted to nail before uh, stepping into this podcast booth with you. But how how did you go from you know in very concrete terms from taking your first couple of steps to getting to the point where you're actually physically able to compete in these dis disciplines that you hadn't built up any kind of expertise in before? You said you were a swimmer. But, you know, triathlons is running and, and bicycling as well. I mean, surely it's not just, you know, your goal could have been like, I want to swim a mile, right? right? Or your goal could have been. So why did you, why was it specifically trying to be the best in, or or excel in these three very different, very difficult sports. You know, for me, maybe, you know, chalk it up to the great marketing that Ironman has done with their NBC coverage of the Ironman or whatnot. But for me, when I thought about 
a strong, challenged, physical person. And, and actually, hats off, I should also mention to the folks who um, do have physical disabilities that still do triathlon, because that's incredible as well. Um, but in my mind, just a fit person was somebody who could do a triathlon or, right. you know, a marathon or something like that, an endurance event. So that's really what I focused on. But yeah, I didn't have the expertise in it. But I think what I realized through excelling in this process was kind of like, well, was I just have this talent to be able to do these endurance sports or is there something more to it? And what I like to say, you know, in, in light of this, as well as, you know, kind of coming into mountaineering, full head of steam and being successful in that when I had some background in it, but certainly not a, you know, professional expertise in that previously, um, is that it's so much about mindset. It's so much about having that moment and committing to something fully. In that hospital room, for whatever reason, when my mom like challenged me with that, maybe that's part of my personality, I was, I was like, nope, you're right. I'm not listening to the doctors. Like, I am going to walk again, and not only going to walk again, I'm going to run again. And not only going to run again, I'm going to complete a triathlon. Sure, I surprised the heck out of myself when I won that race. You know, that was yeah. not what I thought was going to happen. Yeah. Um, but I did, I did believe, you know what, I can somehow figure out how to get across the finish line. And when I look back now and try to sort of pass on the essence of this, like, I look at myself and think, yo, I'm a normal guy. Like, I'm not like some guy has some superhuman powers or anything like that. You're but, not Phelps. Yeah. Sure. You're not Usain Bolt, right? right? You're right. not Lance. Well, okay. You're not <laughs> another I see what you're saying. endurance yeah. cyclist, too. Yeah. But but clean. I do think that I figured out a way to right. you know conjure up high performance and peak right. performance in things, and I think that that starts with having a mindset that's committed fully to believing in the process and engaging the whole process from the first step out of that wheelchair to 18 months later when I'm diving into Lake Michigan and beginning that race, you know, right. being fully competitive in it and the entire process between. Was it a pretty seamless uh, transition then from that first race into doing it professionally? You know, I had uh, certainly a fortunate set of circumstance. I uh, was working in the financial industry in Chicago. I was a commodities trader, so I had an economics degree from Yale, and I kind of thought I would work in the financial industry. Um, but uh, right after I won the triathlon, I met a guy uh, by the name of Brian Gelber, who uh, I didn't wasn't working for, but who also works uh, as a trader, kind of a prolific trader in Chicago. He heard about this story. Um, friends with him and his family he said wow this is incredible um i would love to come on as being your first sponsor if this is something you want to pursue um full-time and for me he goes look it's not going to be probably as lucrative as you know a wall street career uh but certainly if you're passionate about racing triathlon and for me no hesitation um my lifelong childhood dream was to be a professional athlete and here was my opportunity right in front of me age 24 so i went in and quit my job the next day and moved to triathlon or excuse yeah, me moved to on, australia the money, and trading. The money you grew up with not a lot of money right so for me, wasn't that the goal is to not really be comfortable and not have to face the things that you grew up? For me, it's more about the experience. For me, that to me, that is the value. Ultimately, for me, the upside. That's what's always, you know, really drawn me to it. So, yeah, I didn't over my entire traveling career. Like I didn't make enough money, more than enough money to get myself to races and race. And, you know, certainly amazing how much I got to travel the world. I raced in 25 countries on six different continents, you know, what a gift to be able to have that experience. But it's not like I was saving money while doing that, but just having the opportunity to race, push my body, have these experiences, the same thing with this world record project. Uh, you know, I was on, Set, you know, nine different locations, seven continents, the North pole, the South pole, the summit of Everest, these types of places. But um, it wasn't, you know, about, it was just about the challenge and that's what right. fuels me more than, you know, than the paycheck at the end of the day, sure. certainly at that instance in my life. And, and so as you build a triathlon career, I mean, that's obviously 
that's measured in results, right? That's measured in yep. wins. I'm, I'm sure you had Olympics on the mind at one point yep. as well, right? Yep. Um, at what point did you have to let go of that dream? Yeah, so I raced professionally for six or seven years. I could do, I guess, six years. Um, so you were, what, what is that, 30 or something? Yeah, it was uh, 29 going on 30. Okay. And the peak age for triathlon, you know, quite honestly, is, you know, mid-30s, particularly for Ironman distance. Um, but, yeah, you know, I dreamed of the Olympics my whole life. Um, and certainly Olympics were a goal for my for myself for a long time. Uh, you know, I got to a point around 2014. Um, I actually had just won uh, a half Ironman race in South Carolina. It was a, you know, big moment for me, a big professional win, feeling great about that. Um, I don't know exactly how to put it into words other than it kind of came to me. I was like, I've loved this. This has been amazing. Um, but I'm ready for the next goal. I'm ready for the next big challenge. And I also want to do something that's bigger than myself. Um, so Jenna, my fiance, who had been with me on the road in triathlon for several years and is more than just my life partner, but certainly business partner, partner in crime, you know, creative partner uh, and she all the things we boss, do. Right? Yeah, she yeah. would say boss. She but would I was say trying boss. to say that a little bit more creatively. I know. It was good. A collaborator yeah. is another one you could have thrown in there. But why don't we just there. say, why don't we call it what it is? Yeah. We'll just call it so, what it is, man. So my boss said to me, you know. Words, probably. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So my boss said to me, um, you know, what do you want to do next? Like, let's yeah. you want to keep racing triathlon? I, the door was open for me to continue to do that for several more years. You know, I had, you know, solid sponsorship at this point. Um, but for me, I said, I still want to push my body. I think of myself as an athlete first and foremost. I think of myself that of someone who loves to push their body and achieve great things. But I also want to do something that had a larger story to it, a way to connect to more people. Um, and so this world record project kind of had the dual purpose of not only being an epic goal to challenge myself, something right. I've always wanted to do. I've dreamed of climbing ever since I was a little kid. Um, climbing the seven summits was something I always thought about. But also, can we do this in a way that has a media arc to it? Is there a story here? Is there a way for me to then be able to share my story of overcoming this obstacle of this burn to ultimately have success with this that can resonate not just with, you know, my sponsors, but with more people, more media. Um, per certainly, we started this nonprofit around kids and kids' health. Can we be in classrooms? Can we, you know, use this as a teaching tool? And, mm -hmm. you know, fast forward, you know, two and a half years from our, you know, having this was born as an idea in our apartment. We didn't have resources behind our whatnot. You know, in the end, we had, you know, 400 million earned media impressions, 50 million impressions on social. Um, we've been able to speak to hundreds of thousands of kids nationwide and in other countries as well. And, you know, that's because this story has, you know, we're sitting here having this conversation right. because of the same thing. Right. Um, so what was your first pitch, though, to your first sponsor when this was just like a nebulous kind of a thing like, hey, that would be cool. <laughs> and it wouldn't it be great if we could inspire some people yeah. along the way. How did you pitch it? Because surely now you can speak in the sure. polished, you know, eloquence <laughs> of a seasoned salesman and yes. media train yeah. guy. But. You know, I love this question. <laughs> how did you how did you pitch it? This is a great question. Um, I'm not sure I've been asked this one, so my hat is off to you for for asking a really good question. Um, you know, we ref the pitch has been refined over time. The first couple people that I said it to certainly were like, "Yeah, good luck." And one of the things that we realized early on, and I'm, I'm certainly a believer in, is having good creative. Um, so I can tell a story pretty well, but having a good story with a good deck and a good website and that sort of stuff yeah. certainly helps. So we learned that pretty early on. We were like initially kind of like, 
can we build this website off of Squarespace and do our own thing? And we're like, yeah. maybe we need to, like, if we're going to raise the money we need to raise and have this big of a goal, we also need to look like we can pull off this big of a goal. Um, so that was part of the learning process. But honestly, just... Was a, it fake it before you make it? I mean, of course, there's going to be a piece of that. You know, yeah. I truly believed in myself. People said, well, is this possible? Is yeah. this? Can you actually do this? And one yeah. of the things that was a knock against us at the time was, not against us personally, but... No one had summited Everest in 2014 or 2015. 2014, yeah. there was a huge avalanche on the Nepal side, killed 16 Sherpas, unfortunately, and closed the climbing season. And then in 2015, there was the earthquake in Nepal that not only closed the Everest climbing season, but devastated the entire country. 10,000 people lost their lives in the country. You know, terrible tragedy over there. And so anyone who knew a little bit about climbing in this space, we were pitching this to, said, wait a second, no one's climbed Everest in the last two years. What makes you think you can climb not only Everest, but complete eight other expeditions in this time and set two world records. So we were up against having to be able to, I don't know if it's fake it till you make it, but certainly exude a level of confidence in saying, hey, but what if this does work? If this does work, this is going to be a great story. There's going to be incredible creative and visuals around it. Think of all these mountaintops. Think of the adventure, the story, and that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, I'd be lying to say I'm for, I very, feel very fortunate that we had incredible sponsors at the end of the day behind it. Why you do know? you think they invested in you, though, at the beginning? Oh, that's a good question. You're going deep. I like it. Why? 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 Um, I believe, I will say this, this might sound a little uh, hippity doodah back to my roots, um, but you know whether you like it or not, this is my beliefs, which is I believe when you put something into the world with conviction that you can manifest it, that you when you go out in the world and say, I am going to do this. We were not asking permission. Um, so when Jen and I came up with this idea, we weren't sitting around going, but we're going to go in this meeting and say we think we can pull this off, but like looking at each other like, but, but can we really? Like every single day we woke up and it was like, we are doing this. We are 100% doing this. Um, so much so to the point where, you know, we were two months away from the project and we had only raised half the money for the budget. But we had already done a press release and told everyone, Colin leaves for Antarctica on this day. This is happening. And Jenna's looking at me and she goes, you realize you're going to run out of money after the third expedition. You can't even pay for like the subsequent six. And I was like, something is going to happen in the next two months. A domino is going to fall and this is all going to work out. And that wasn't just bluster. That was a true belief in doing this. And so... I mean, I believe I do believe that when because you because it was the message, right? Because you believed in the message. And I believe in the that, whole that, arc that of it that people would rally around this idea. Absolutely, like yeah. I didn't because I I wanted to do this because it was more than myself, and I truly believe that it has become way bigger than myself. This story, um, certainly, just you know, we've continued to do this work in classrooms where we ask the kids kids a simple question. We say, "Colin's climbing Everest. What's your Everest?" And kids are coming to us and saying, you know, my Mount Everest is to be the first person in my family to graduate from college. You know, my Mount Everest is to be the next Simone Biles, so I'm going to work every single day in the gym trying to be the best gymnast I can be. And I believe by putting out that positivity into the world that we were going to some way find someone that believed in this project to kind of resonate that and reflect that back to us. And ultimately, you know, did we pull it off? You know, we pulled it off by the skin of our teeth, but yeah. we did it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you were broke while you were pitching this. Absolutely. Too, yeah. Completely. <laughs> you were. Really? Where were you guys living at the time? <laughs> we we have we have a small place in Portland, but right. just, you know, we, we, we've been on the road traveling for triathlon for years. Yeah. And it was kind of funny to make the conscious choice to 
stopped the traveling. I mean, I competed a little bit that year, um, but way less than I had been and kind of just huddled in our, in our apartment, you know, near family yeah. and just where, where we obviously, you know, have some support networks sure. and, yeah. uh, you know, try to make it happen. Well, Definitely it's, a, it's, a, it's, the art of hustle a little bit for no, sure. For sure. But it's also this idea of, uh, I think it's so interesting. You see it now in the startup world, you see it in tech world, that sort of thing. But, um, this idea of, you know, you guys had like, Hey, we've got this kind of like this income stream that's really not much. It's more of like a little babbling brook than yeah. it is like a stream, <laughs> much less a waterfall, you know. And now we're gonna give that up um, because um, Colin over here wants to climb, you know, wants to make nine massive expeditions that in in, in an area that he's never done before. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean. So I mean. And we. Everything it requires was- something, right? It requires delusion maybe it requires incredible confidence it requires probably also a lot of discipline right and for sure and i mean talk about that part of it i mean tenacity discipline i think that and also continually positive encouragement i mean from were there times when i felt like giving up of course but there was also most of the time when i was like yep that person said no that's the 10th person that has said no to us but like okay, well, what's the next meeting? Who's the next person I can meet? You know, where right. might I meet? You know, could it be anywhere? Am I going to meet someone at my local gym? Am I going to meet someone at my coffee shop? My, you know, third cousin knows somebody in New York that I could, you know, shake hands with. And this, yeah. I mean, it was that level. So when you talk about discipline, I think there's a discipline when you put a big idea into the world of being able to commit to it fully, as I said before. But I also believe in this, you know, phrase, it's always darkest before the dawn. Right. And so like when I was having the worst moments, I was kind of like, but the best moment might be tomorrow. And Jenna laughs at me. She's like, you have this crazy optimism. I don't know exactly where it comes from, but that belief. And I think for me, again, the burn accident surely has been a huge lesson learned for me. And when I look back on that incident, for example, I wouldn't wish the pain and trauma of that on my worst enemy. I mean, it was terrible. It was horrific. Um, You know, you see the pictures from it and it's just, you know, devastating. But at the same time, I also learned such a great lesson from it And so when I looked at this project, I fundamentally believe that I could succeed with this project. But the other thing that was sort of my saving grace emotionally was at least I'm going to try as hard as I possibly can to pull this thing off. I'm going to not not raise the money or fail and go, yeah, but I didn't really actually email all the people I could. I didn't pick up the phone as much as I could. So having that daily discipline as well as I needed to train, keep my body fit the whole time because I was outwardly saying, hey, I'm going to do this. So I needed to be training as if I was going to try one of the craziest expeditions you could possibly try. Yeah. So it definitely took a lot of discipline and passion, but it was also one of the more fun journeys I've ever been a part of. Right. And and so when did you depart for? So this all started in uh, the, the dreaming started in 2014. Okay. Uh, 2015 was the year of the planning and the hustle. Um, okay. And then I left on Christmas Day 2015. So I actually began the South Pole Expedition basically early January uh, 2016. So okay. uh, about 18 months ago now. And then it, the, the next 139 days rolled off from you know Antarctica to Aconcagua to Kilimanjaro and around the world to Everest, North Pole, Denali. Um, from there all the way into May 27, 2016 was when I finished. <sighs> So many questions, right? Um, jet lag. How'd you deal with that? You know, one of the things that certainly prepared me for is people say, well, triathlon, what does that have to do with mountaineering? And I said, well, it's at least got a few things to do with this project. One is 
being able to high perform anywhere in the world because I raced all over the world. I was used to getting off planes and having to be ready to go. I mean, I raced triathlon in Zimbabwe and Mombasa and, you know, Latvia and, you know, all of Mauritius. You know, I've been to some races in some pretty random places on the ITU circuit. So that certainly helped my training for that, you know, over the years had helped. Um, but also, yeah, just just kind of almost not even ever getting on a time zone. I was coming off mountains and then calling home to, you know, the to Jenna, who was running the logistics on the ground and saying, OK, I just got off Aconcagua. Get me on the next flight to Kilimanjaro. And she's like, OK, well, here's the best flight path I can come up with. Mendoza, Argentina, Sao Paulo, Brazil, 10 hours in Sao Paulo, fly to Adidas, Ababa, Ethiopia, 12 hour layover there. You'll land in Moshi at 7 p.m. and you can be climbing by 6 a.m. What do you think? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Are you serious? It was like, and that. like There was like many, many times like that. I mean, the most epic probably was, uh, you know, coming down from Everest. I had summited Everest. There was only one expedition to go. So Everest was a second last and I had Denali to finish up. And I, I come off the summit of Everest, um, and Everest in itself had had a lot of trials and tribulations. I got caught out in a big storm on my first summit attempt and had to come back down. But how did you, sorry, because yep. I, I, I want to talk about that for a second yep. because I read that you actually went back up. Yeah, so. How? Like, don't you need the time to acclimatize or isn't? So I'd already, I was already acclimatized, um, okay. but Everest was actually pretty intense because I was coming straight from the North Pole which is at sea level, just right. sea ice floating around the middle of the ocean. Mm -hmm. I get over to Everest. Um, usually I have about eight weeks to climb Everest, best case scenario. That's what normally people take. And because I had been delayed at the North Pole and I was at sea level, I now only had three weeks to climb Everest. I was the last person in the entire season to arrive to Everest Base Camp on April 27th. Normally you, you realize you, you sound a little bit like a child, <laughs> right? Like describing like, so what'd you do? Oh, well, I was in the North Pole and then I flew to Everest. and I, You know what I mean? It's like that <laughs> fantastic. It wasn't like, <laughs> sorry. Uh, no, so, good. okay. So you, all right. You no, were, I made it all up, man. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, like, yeah. like, no, no. Good but, interview, though. So thanks. you were, that was great. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so, so you had, uh, you had been acclimatized and, and, but you did have a difficult. So I, I made my first attempt on Everest after being there for about two and a half weeks. I had acclimatized. I basically yeah. on Everest, for those who don't know out there, there's base camp, which is at 17,000 feet and the summit's 29,000 feet. But then there's right. camps progressively higher, roughly about 2000 feet higher each time. And what you do is you climb up the mountain stay at the higher camps for a few days, get your body used to it, then climb up to the next higher camp. That's the sort of broad strokes of how it works. So I climbed up to Camp 4, which is known as a South Call, also known as the death zone. Anything above 26,000 feet, even with supplemental oxygen, the human body is basically slowly kind of decreasing, uh, declining. Um, and so I get up there. The weather's supposed to be good. Um, I'm just climbing with myself and a Sherpa by the name of Pasang Bodhi, who I had met climbing previously in the Himalaya the year before us, so just the, just us. Um, and a huge storm blows in kind of out of nowhere. We've got, you know, 60 mile per hour winds, takes us, you know, two hours just to set up a tent just for survival mode, let alone we're not, there's no chance that we're going to continue climbing at this point. Um, survive the night up there in the death zone and have to climb back down. And usually on Everest, um, for a couple of reasons, one, just exhaustion, is you go up to Camp 4, spend a night out in a storm, like that was your summit attempt, like good luck, like go home, basically. Right. Um, and also there, you know, you use you have supplemental oxygen. You're starting to use some of your oxygen. So only a certain amount of oxygen has been in place up there that you've kind of cached up on the higher camps. And so we had to figure out, is there any extra bottles from people who aren't going up, who have cached them up there? What are the resources looking like? But fortunately, um, we had the opportunity to make 
a second attempt three days later. Um, so we climbed back up to Camp 4 and, and pushed for the summit. And again, the climbing conditions were you know, forecast to be about the same. Could be good. Also, the weather could change just as fast as it had. Unfortunately, we've been somewhat near our tents at Camp 4, but my, you know, this is where people say, were you ever scared up there? I was like, I'm only human. I was scared a lot up there, particularly in this instance when I'm in the death zone, I'm above 26,000 feet, and three days prior, I've seen, previously, I've seen how quickly the weather can change. And so I know, man, if I'm up there at the summit and it changes this fast, like, no one can carry you down from there. No, there's no rescue. Like you are your own person up there and that's it. And so I actually made a, you know, phone call, pretty, you know, emotional phone call home to Jenna that night from camp four was just like, what should I do? Like, I- I'm, I'm scared. I saw how fast it can change. I'm afraid people might die on this mountain tonight. You know, what do you think we should do? And an incredible testament to her and her strength and her support through this time, you know, similar to my mother kind of wiping her fear away in the Thai hospital and saying to me, Hey, you're gonna you can get through this you know jenna kind of pushes her fear away and says colin i believe in you you've trained so hard from this you're so close to setting this huge goal that you've worked so hard towards like i believe in you go out there people are going to summit everest today there's no reason you can't be one of them and that you know that gave me the definitely the strength to get get out of there and when i talk about you know i I don't mince words when i say i wanted to do something bigger than myself it was certainly not only jenna's support at that time but at this point you know we were Snapchatting. I ultimately was the first person to Snapchat from the summit of Everest, which was kind of a cool thing, you know, and all jokes aside, but it was a way I was sharing this with the world. You know, there was students all around the country who in their classrooms were following this along and I was hoping to inspire them and knowing that, you know, of course they wanted me to come home safe and to make good decisions. But at the same time, knowing that they were cheering me on gave me that extra push and realized like I was one, one interesting moment to realize, hey, my goal with this was to try to inspire a bunch of young people to, you know, dream big. But really, like, knowing they're cheering me on is what's inspiring me to get out of my tent in this kind of scary moment, face my fears, and ultimately get to the summit of Everest and, and achieve my goal. So, right. So yeah. it's ultimately, it's it's the inspiring others, the others actually inspire you absolutely. in the end. You know, Ex- absolutely. That, that's absolutely. the thing that drives you. So, but no, God, I was, that's, that's so sketchy, though, yeah. isn't it? Like, well, what it, a... What it an is. interesting, I mean, what a what a miscalculation that could have been as well, yeah, right? It, I mean, that balance. For do you sure. Feel, do you feel sometimes you you aired in in this journey and those in the, especially in the one that we're talking about now not just Everest but the the nine expeditions do you do you feel like there were moments when you you pushed it a bit too far you know i'll tell you a story from denali that i think sums it up pretty well which is i made some decisions for sure i before i left i said to my family I'm not going to make any decisions differently than I wouldn't on any other mountain that I'm climbing, whether it's, you know, Mount Hood in Oregon or something like that. I've turned away from plenty of mountains. Any any good mountaineer will tell you, like, mountain's always there. Sometimes the weather turns. Sometimes you're not feeling good. You got to turn around. But when world record is on the line, you're obviously going to push a little bit beyond, you know, your normal comfort level, which, again, to achieve great things, sometimes that's what it takes. Um, But there is a fine line between that and making egregious mistakes in the mountains where you pay with your life. Um, So... That was definitely a calculus. You know, that night on Everest, I, you know, made it up and down safely, uh, which was great. But it wasn't, uh, you know, two other climbers on the mountain uh, died that night, as well as one climber died on Lhotse, which is the adjacent mountain to Everest. Um, And about 20 plus people were evacuated ultimately with severe frostbite from climbing through that night, kind of putting into um, focus how bad the conditions really were that night. And so how did um, you escape that, by the way? Sorry. 
you know, it, it's a, a testament to fitness training, moving, moving hard. Actually, a funny story. I, I, uh, I, I took my, <clears throat> I was uh, climbing with my partner, partner Pasang Bodhi, and we're climbing up. And so in Everest, there's one rope, and everyone's using this fixed rope um, to climb on the same route. So for the first half, we decided it was actually less safe for us to be behind a bunch of people who were on this rope because they're moving slowly. You can get very cold. And so I climbed up half of the mountain unroped. It's not the most safe thing, but it felt safer than being roped and behind all these people to this part called the balcony, which is kind of halfway up the summit day. Then it gets even more exposed. It used to be crazy to not be roped up at that point. So we decided, hey, we're going to rope up. And at that point, I still had one heavier jacket that I hadn't put on. So I wanted to put on my final layer. And as a result, I adjust my gloves. I adjust my gloves and I look down and my right hand is black, like black as black can be. And I'm like, shit, like I frostbite my right hand, like, you know, and I, then I go to this really dark downward spiral. I don't say anything to Pasang for a second. I'm kind of like, oh, my God, my right hand. Am I going to do this with my right hand? What's Jenna going to think? Is she still going to love me? You know, what's my family going to think? And then I think, well, if I'm going to lose my right hand anyways, maybe they'll at least love me if I get to the summit of Everest. And, I'm, and then, I, then I lose my hand. Terrible calculus, by the way. <laughs> Terrible calculus. But at 28,000 feet, the brain's not working great. Shove my hand back in my gloves, continue to climb forwards. I go like that for three hours in my head. I'm like, my hand is, I, I don't know how I did this. I thought I couldn't tell. I get up about 30 minutes from the summit and decide, well, I've got to at least take a couple pictures up here. I'm like about approaching the Hillary step, which apparently is not there anymore. But this section, final stretch of the mountain. So I adjust my gloves one more time and I look down and I just start hysterically laughing and start fist pumping. And Pasang looks at me and he goes, Colin, the summit's still 30 minutes away. Uh, I think you're celebrating prematurely. Are you okay? Like, are you not breathing? You're not oxygen your brain? I was like, no, my hand's back. My hand's back. And it just so happened that the chemical hand warmers in my gloves had broken open and dyed my hand completely black. That's amazing. That's <laughs> amazing. So, <laughs> I had basically three hours on my summit day where I was like, I frostbit in my hand, I'm losing it, this. And so that relief of actually that not happening was a great joy for me. But, you know, like, as you know, all jokes aside, you know, unfortunately, some others, you know, weren't as, as fortunate as I was. You know, I think it's a testament to taking care of yourself. Certainly people end up on Everest who, you know, have no business being up there. Unfortunately, that's one of the problems with the mountain at this point. Um, but, you know, it's not my place to criticize others. But, you know, certainly looking after my own safety up there was, uh, you know, for me, success from this project didn't look like, you know, Although I made this decision to keep climbing when I thought my fan was frostbit, when my mind wasn't working great, you know, that wouldn't have been success. Like the success from this project, first and foremost, was coming home safely with all my fingers and toes, with a smile on my face. And hopefully two world records would be sort of the cherry on top of that. But, right. you know, of course, you're not trying to jeopardize your safety, but you're taking risks. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. like you're, you're this is the Red Bulletin. You've, so, you've interviewed some guys who are taking some pretty crazy risks. A few. Yeah. yeah. So Denali. Yeah. So. <laughs> I come down from Everest. Yeah. I'm in camp four. I call home to Jenna and I say, hey, I made it. I made it. Like, I summoned at Everest. She's like, great. How you feeling? And I said, I left this part of the story out, but I'll tell you now. I said, you know, I burned my feet. And she said, you burned your feet? Oh, we're getting some social media posts. Sounds like there might be a lot of bad frostbite on there. I said, no, no, no. I thought I frostbite my hands, so I turned my foot warmers in my boots up really high. And I've actually burned Two small <laughs> silver dollar circles in the bottoms of my feet. No way. She was like, "Man, you fire! You're the I only idiot. Like you're, you're, you're your feet you fire. fire. Like you're the only idiot that goes climbs Everest and comes back with a burn, <laughs> yeah. not a frostbite, a burn." <laughs> right. So of course she's laughing at me, yeah. and she says, "So I hate to tell you this, but um, I need you to put your boots back on." I'm like, 
I'm in camp four. Like I'm exhausted. Like, I just yeah. climbed Everest. Like yeah. I'm gonna chill. I'm at this point. I'm two months ahead of breaking the Explorers Grand Slam world record. So I'm thinking I can get down, go climb Denali in a normal amount of time, and like I'm good to go. And she says, "Well, we've been doing some calculations back home, and it just so happens." If you summit Denali in the next week, you'll not only set the Explorers Grand Slam world record, but you'll also set the Seven Summits world record. Um, but you got to climb Denali in the next week. And I was like, okay, I'm interested. It just took me an hour to take my boots off and climb in my tent here. Like, what, what does that mean? And she said, well, here's what I need you to do. I need you to put your boots back on. I need you to climb back down to base camp right now. At base camp, there's no time for you to sleep, but I've arranged for a helicopter that's going to take you to Kathmandu. No time for you to sleep overnight in a hotel either. Sorry, but an evening flight's going to take you to Dubai, Seattle, to Anchorage. And then you'll have about three or four days to get up Denali. I know it normally takes three month, three weeks to climb Denali, best case. Um, but if you can get up there in three or four days, you're going to be not just a one, but a two-times world record holder. And I was like... I was, you know, granted, I was 139 days or whatever, five days into the project at this point. And so I was this is like, like, she's like the she's taskmaster. Like the, she's kind of like a beauty pageant mom, <laughs> isn't she? That's what's kind of coming up, emerging here slowly. Exactly. You know, we, um, uh, this is like, you know, oh, she's like, oh, my support. I mean, you just met her and she's a very like, she right? seems you wouldn't super expect nice. It, right? Wouldn't expect it at all. <laughs> No, wow, but she knows right. how much I cared about this, and she uh, she's sitting in the other room here laughing. She I'm is. sure, uh, maybe, maybe laughing, not. mild grinning. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> um, but anyways, um, you know, she knows how competitive I am, and I was like, yeah, like let's give this a shot, absolutely. And this kind of comes back to when you asked me, did you push the boundaries? So, my climbing partner, a guy by the name of Tucker Cunningham, a uh, good friend of mine who I grew up um, swimming with, actually, he's become a great climber, uh, amazing, amazing mountain man, and uh, he met me on Denali to kind of finish out this project with me i was alone on some mountains but i also had different people kind of pop in for different expeditions which was great because they kind of refueled me with a new energy that hadn't been out there as long as me kind of like a a pacer in a ultra marathon or something comes right. in at mile 75 and runs the last 20 miles with you or something like that so he kind of comes in i said hey man here's the deal like we got to try to climb denali in the next few days and he's like all right man i'm here for you like let's do this so we get halfway up the mountain we get to 14 camp which is kind of the halfway point on denali go to sleep, wake up, massive storm has rolled in. You know, we're at 50, 60 mile per hour winds. I was actually told that the ranger station saw 80 mile per hour winds at some point that night, which was a record for the season, like just brutal windstorm. And we've got 24 hours now to get to the summit of Denali. And it was kind of this moment of like, well, like best case, we're kind of two days below the summit in normal conditions. Now we're in horrendous conditions. What do you think we can do? We kind of looked at each other and I was like, well, um, can we climb for 15 minutes was literally the conversation we had. It was like, well, we're 12 hours below the summit. Can we climb for 15 minutes? And he's like, bro, like I'm here for you. Like, what do you need? Like, let's try it. And testament to him. He definitely was like down for it, even though it was pretty doubtful that it was going to work. So we both kind of put our gear on, set out, started climbing. We actually walked past a tent um, and a guy kind of unzips his tent and says to us, he's like, where are you guys going? Are you bailing off of here? I heard the storm's going to last eight or nine days. We're thinking about bailing down to lower altitudes and waiting it out before going up. And we're like, no, no, man. We're like yelling through this, you know, snowstorm. I'm like, no, man, we're going for the summit today. And there he's like, get back in your tent. Like, no one's climbing this mountain today. Like, you got to be crazy. Um, but, you know, we went out there in it. We gave it our best shot. You know, the wind uh, actually kind of blew us off our feet a couple times, to be honest. That's how strong it was. Um, but we kept sort of pushing through it. And my mantra this whole time was kind of like, just like those first steps um, in the wheelchair was like, can I walk two steps? Can I walk five steps? It was kind of like, can we go for 15 minutes? Every 15 minutes, we'd kind of look at each other, yell across the wind, feet okay, hands okay, you staying warm? Yeah, this 
sucks, but I'm okay. Yeah. You know, another 15 minutes that turned into 30, turned into an hour, turned into two hours. And, you know, 12 hours later or something like that, we found ourselves on the summit of Denali, which was my ultimate, you know, finish line setting, not just one, but, but two world records. But, you know, that, that's an incredible moment for me, but I'll go back to your, where this question started, which was, did I push the limits beyond what I may have normally. And the truth is absolutely like that's an example of if I was just out there just to climb Denali with my buddies to stand on the mountain, I for sure would have waited for a day that didn't have 50, 60 mile per hour winds to go out and try it. Of course. Yeah. But, you know, I was fueled by a passion to see if I could, you know, set a second world record. And when you're trying to do things that faster than anyone's ever done in the world or a world record sure. or true high performance or something that's a first or anything like that. Yeah. You're pushing the envelope. You know, you're, you you're don't definitely, sound like you regret it. And, and I'm, you know, at the end of the you day, you don't sound like you yeah, do. No, I don't. I don't regret it. I, I'm, I'm proud of it. But there were also, you know, I also turned back on my first summit attempt on Everest and turned around and thought the expedition was over. So, I mean, right. It's a balance. There was moments, Aconcagua, the same thing. I took two two attempts because I got up there high, the winds were too high, and I came back down. Yeah. And that was my third expedition. So, you know, you turn back sometimes, you push through sometimes, and that's just knowing sort of your own strengths, yeah. ability for risk. And it's not like I was out there, like, it wasn't didn't feel like a coin flip to me. It wasn't like I was like, I might die out here or I might make it. It was like, this yeah. is tough, but I feel in control. Let's keep going, reassess, yeah. you yeah. know, that kind of thing. But it was an adventure, man, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> to say the least. There's a, there's a small video clip of me when I get to the summit um, and, uh, you know, Tucker's filming me because, you know, I want a video of me finishing this world record. And we kind of have this uh, embrace of this hug and the GoPro is kind of in my face. And you would think it'd be like this, you know, shit eating grin or this huge smile on my face, something like that. And it's just this look of like, I don't know if it's relief, exhaustion, or just kind of almost like this blank, vacant stare of like, yeah, how are we going to get back down? Yeah. (laughs) I know. Everyone's always like, what did it feel like when you're at the top? And you're like, just exhausted. Yeah. But in the most beautiful way, man. I mean, to be able to put my heart and soul and not just me, but this was a team effort. You know, me, Jenna, my mother, the whole team around us, sponsors, you know, all that sort of stuff. I mean, to be in the culmination, the kids that were cheering us on, um, you know, that that was an amazing How much money did you raise in the end? How much money were you able to I don't know what the final dollar number is, but, um, you know, know, we, we we did pretty well. Okay. Um, you know, our goal was a million. We didn't quite get there, but, uh, you know, we raised some good money and, and more so than that, we were able to spread this message further and wide than I ever thought we could with as much media and attention as we had and continuing to be able to do that, you know, continuing yeah. to have an opportunity to speak about this, to speak about my passion for inspiring people to get outside, move their bodies, be active, healthy, all that sort of stuff. Right. It's definitely given us a platform to continue to, you know, you know, you, explore that. You did two world records this was a year ago you finished. Yep. You can dine out on that the rest of your life. <laughs> um, what meaning do records have for you anymore? You know, it's funny. I certainly, you know, we talked about the hustle. We talked about the entrepreneur side of, you know, getting this to go, raising, you know, the money we needed to make it happen. Um, you know, having a world record associated with what you're doing allows you to tell a more large scope story. You know, I'm, attra- I'm, I'm attracted to hearing stories about people, you know, you know, what Alex Honnold did, first guy to climb unroped up Yosemite. I mean, that's insane, right? Like, so there's something about that cachet of world first or world record or something like that um, that, that is special. I would also argue, um, and I certainly don't pretend to put myself in, in the same category as, as Alex Honnold because I just, my hat's off to that guy for what he just accomplished. Like, what an incredible thing. But I would argue to say for me, for him, it wasn't about being the first to do this. The same way for me, it wasn't really at the end of the day 
being the trying to be the fastest. Like that was an awesome byproduct of this, but I wanted to push my own boundaries. That was what was exciting to me. So having that carrot on a stick of that world record to be able to chase forced me to push myself as hard as I could till that very last moment. And it's amazing, like you said, to be able to sit here and say, look, I have two world records, you know, that's incredible. And that's a nice soundbite. But ultimately, just like the triathlon was about me, I wanted to finish the race because I wanted to show that I could thrive on the other side of this terrible injury for myself. It's the same way here. Whereas I wanted to tackle this adventure and it's awesome to come away with it with two world records and things, the doors that that's open and things like that. But ultimately, it was about me pushing my own personal limits and my own boundaries to sort of see what I would be like on the other side of that journey. When right. you asked me about, you know, trying to raise that money or fake it till you make it, it's like I said before, it's like at least I was going to try as absolutely hard as I could. You know, win, lose, draw, fail, whatnot. Like I'm putting my whole heart and soul into whatever I try. And that's that's what but I did. But does with this, this kind of does this blow up whatever the hell you're trying to do next? I mean, is this like, <laughs> does this set up this incredibly high barrier or has it augmented your way of thinking uh, about the type of projects you want to go do going forward? For sure. You know, there's things on the horizon, no- nothing that I can quite talk about yet on the air um, in terms of specifics, but it definitely, to me, it comes back to, you know, human potential. I believe we all have reservoirs of unlocked potential um, and that we can access them by committing fully, by setting goals, by pushing ourselves. So that will be a through line in any project that I try to do moving forwards. Um, you know, I think, again, you know, you, like I said before, you've, you've interviewed probably some incredible athletes. People have done f- some phenomenal things. Um, and there is that in this space, right, of action, sports, adventure, whatever you want to call it. It's like, well, you did this. Well, what's next? Like, how are you going to one-up sure, that? How's yeah. that going to be bigger? Yeah. How's that going to be better? How's that going to be this? So does that play on my mind? Of course. Um, but also the creativity plays in my mind. I think that they're, the world of adventure is changing, um, you know. I, I am drawn to world firsts and world records just because I'm interested in, in pioneering things that no one has ever done before. So I look at those things. But as the landscape in our world shifts with technology and this and this, there's less and less. You know, 100 years ago, Shackleton's taking a boat down to, you know, yeah. Antarctica. It's like yeah. humans haven't even ever walked around there. The guy doesn't have a map or anything. He's like walking around on uncharted territory. How much of that is left when you have Google Maps and satellite images everywhere, sure. right? Yeah. So you have to be really creative when thinking about these things. But that's also a fun challenge, just in the way that Shackleton couldn't share this journey with people. I have a phone in my hand that I can actually, people might not be on these, be able to go on these adventures or even want to go on them, but I can take them and be like, I'm on the summit of Mount Everest, first Snapchat ever. People are like, you know, millions of people are seeing that going like, whoa, like crazy. I'm looking at my phone, there's a guy standing yeah. at summit Everest. So I admire Shackleton and there's a purity to what the adventure looked like a hundred years ago that I admire and along for with nostalgia. But at the same time, as I look forwards, I think, how can I make an intersection of all these things, content, storytelling, engaging others in a way that not only fuels me, but inspires them in whatever their medium is in my own life. I use the uh, soundbite earlier of saying, someone saying to me, my Everest is to be the first person in my family to go to college. Like, that's an incredible goal. And if they're inspired by my mountaineering project touches them in a way for them to a, you know, without parsing words, climb their own Everest, like that's awesome. So I'm looking for those types of narratives and things with whatever it is that I do that connect people in a full way. Yeah. For a social impact, essentially, like, like using, using the feats as a way to share 
share the emotion of it and inspire as you share it. Absolutely. And I, and, yeah. and the truth is, you know, I, I mentioned Alex Honnold's project, but I mean, there's so many projects that I could point to. Like I'm constantly inspired by what other people are doing. I mean, this is not me in a vacuum trying to pound my chest and be like, well, my project's cooler than your project and yours is this. Like, you know, endlessly, like I am amazed by the way people are pushing their body and things that I couldn't, you know, imagine doing myself. Um, and it's just, it's an amazing time to be alive and be able to not only have that be going on, but be able to observe that to be able to access that to have things like podcasts and content and media that allows us to you know watch people you know high perform and push themselves in a various ways that i'm you know just personally inspired by myself awesome colin thank you man yeah my pleasure (laughs) thanks for having me dre absolutely dude that was great all right colin o'brady thank you Thank you so much. So inspiring. This has been the Red Bulletin Podcast. I've been your host, Andreas Georges. I know I neglected to say that at the top of the uh, top of the pod. Um, also, the first name, James, our engineer, our producer is T. Rizza, associate producer, Ryan, the Turbo Thurbin, Unique Monique, Melissa Thompson, and of course, Nicole, don't call me Steve Buscemi, is our social angel. Uh, we will see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>